The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored and delighted to welcome a friend, a colleague, a trusted expert in food, Donna Battle Pierce. Donna is a journalist, editor, and food historian, and director of the nonprofit Skillet Project, which creates meaningful connections among generations through food and journalism. Ms. Pierce has worked as a test kitchen director and assistant food editor for the Chicago Tribune, an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Missouri's School of Journalism, and contributing editor for Upscale Magazine. Her syndicated column, Black America Cooks, has appeared in the Chicago Defender and other national black publications. Ebony Magazine featured her Hungry for History column, and with a Neiman Foundation visiting fellowship at Harvard University, Ms. Pierce researched black cookbooks and forgotten cooks at the Schlesinger Library for her upcoming book about Frida DeKnight, the first food editor at Ebony Magazine. I know Donna as a food and features editor at the Columbia Daily Tribune, where we met. She's one of the best editors I've ever worked with, and she's been a dear friend ever since. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. It's so great to be talking to you on the phone. (laughs) Yes, it is great to talk with you as well. And I think that the time is right for us to reconnect. You know, we are uncovering so many racial injustices in our food and healthcare systems, And I want to amplify those injustices and help move us forward through the food lens. So first, I need to start at ground one, ground level, and say, how and when did you first become interested in the beauty and power of food? Oh, when I was a little girl. And in fact, I had mentioned to you that this is today is my grandmother's birthday. Mm -hmm. And she is the one who... She was the most amazing, lovely woman. And she is the person who taught me to cook and taught me to love dishes and recipes and took the time to show me when a dough was right or how it was supposed to smell and taught me just everything about it through her whole life. And I always remember she's been gone. I She was born in 1909 and she died in 1980. And I was living in Sausalito when she passed away. And I was just getting started. I was like a week into a new job, a great new job. And my mother called and she said, your grandmother would not want you to come to the funeral. What she would want you to do is to cook her favorite meal and then celebrate over that meal her life. And I made the best gumbo I have ever made since ever made in my life. We had gumbo and we sat around the table and talked about our grandmothers that day. Oh, Donna, you know, what I remember about your columns is that I don't Mm -hmm. think I ever read one with a dry eye at the end. (laughs) And here you are again, bringing tears to my eyes about this beautiful way 
of celebrating your grandmother. And wouldn't it be a wonderful tradition if we did that for all of our loved ones who have passed, maybe on their birthday or the day that they left this earth, that we would bring back a favorite dish or recipe? And I actually do that. I actually cook people's favorite foods. My dad, I always do sweet potatoes because he loved sweet. And, you you know, my dad knew George Washington Carver. He studied under him at Tuskegee. And he's in the books and that are down in the museum and Diamond and Bath. My dad was interviewed for several of those, but he he loved, 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 loved sweet potatoes. So I always have sweet potatoes on November 3rd on his birthday. Mm, I remember your father. <laughs> so I should let our listeners know that you grew up in Columbia, Missouri. That is where Correct. this show is based. That's how we met. I knew your father. He was a giant of a human being, respected by the community and his work in education. And I remember having a discussion with him when he described some of the challenges of being black in an otherwise white-dominated world. And he was so gracious and wise in dealing with the racial tensions that were rife in this community. And you had mentioned before we started interviewing that you actually, you and your sister, integrated the grade school where our children attended. Grant School. Yep. That's right. We, I was in second grade, and my sister was in first grade. And it was a big deal to my parents and to everyone that we were going to... I went in first grade when they moved here. My, my dad had been principal of, of a regional school called Dalton in north of Columbia, northwestern. And, and it was a segregated school. And they had brought him down with the possibility of integration here. He came down for a year at Douglas, and I went to kindergarten and first grade in Douglas. My mother was a first grade teacher. And then the integration was decided, and I was in second grade. And I remember a couple of things I think about all the time. I remember walking in, sitting in the classroom, Miss Mamie, Mary Jane Davis, who was a friend of our family, and a friend from church, my mother had to be at school, so she walked us, and she said, girls, I want you to stand tall, and I want you not to be afraid, and we didn't even know we were supposed to be afraid, but it was wonderful of her, and we talked about things, and she said, I'm going to be right here outside in case you need anything. No one knew really definitely what to expect, and I remember the one thing that does stand out for me, and I can still see it like I'm there, I didn't have the friendliest teacher in the world, that second grade teacher. I won't mention her name, but my sister did. And then later I had wonderful, my favorite teachers, Mrs. Gilbert and Mrs. Funk and different teachers that came along. But this teacher said that at recess, she said, you have, you can decide for yourself if you want to play with Donna or not. Hmm. And I was surprised. (laughs) I said, what? Because I kind of always had friends. And then this one little girl comes up to me and she said, hello. My name is Ann Garrett, and my mother told me that I had to play with you, and I had to be your friend, and we're going to be friends, and we were friends all the way through school. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I want to just say something about Grant School, because I think that it lends itself to our discussion on food and culture and race. Grant School was a small elementary school, and what I loved about sending my children there was that it was fully integrated with children with multicolored skin. And right. and from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And I, I often hope right. that around the table with food, 
we can bring peace and understanding. So if we're fearful of someone because they don't look like us, maybe if we sat down at a meal and got to know them, maybe that would remove the fear and we could see that we have more in common than not. And I remember having cultural dinners with students, and it was great. Mm. One thing about Grant that was funny, my mom and dad had come from Mobile, the Gulf Coast, Mobile, Alabama. And it was seafood all the time. That's all they really ate. Very infrequently did they have meat. And at Grant School, we came home and we had, not only did we have chili, and my mother had never had chili before, but we had chili with peanut butter sandwiches. And I've never heard of that since either. <laughs> the peanut butter served with chili. But we came home and we said to mom, you know, this is what we want. We really love. And she learned how to make chili. And she made it with peanut butter. And to this day, whenever I have chili, I still think of peanut butter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Isn't that great? Our food memories yeah. are so wonderful. And that's what your work is. It's collecting yeah. food memories. Maybe we should jump into the Skillet Project because that lends itself to exactly this topic. Yes, yes. Well, the Skillet Project is about saving the connection between people who are studying journalism or who want to write, and people, and it's in, it's in it change right now because it was visiting in rest homes and interviewing and getting information. We're going to do it now all digitally mm. and then presenting them with a book of their recipes. Oh. And so it's visiting and it's learning their recipes and their stories because there are always wonderful stories that go along with really favorite family recipes. And a lot of times people have not shared that for a long time or don't remember them. And then things begin to come out about their family and where they live. As you said, so much more than just what you're eating is about the food that really is, stays with you. And so that's what this is going to be, joining generations of students and then people that are in rest homes or people that are living alone, wow. elders. What a beautiful project, and what a great time to be doing this during this COVID-19 time when people are actually returning to kitchens and wanting to cook. And that brings me to something that you brought up. You have been involved, of course, in the Southern Foodways Alliance. And in preparation for this interview, I went back and listened to an interview of you from 2018, and you spoke about recipe writing as a style of writing, and that a lot of the recipes that we find, like in books and online, they don't really work. And I had that experience with the Silver Palette cookbooks. They were very popular at one time. I tried some recipes. They were terrible. And I contacted the authors and they acted, they were not surprised at all. They were like, yeah, you know, not all the recipes are tested. And I thought, well, why would you put a recipe in a book that you didn't test first? <laughs> exactly. Well, that's a real concern with recipes over the internet, which is why uh, my grandmother, when she would send me recipes, she would say, this is just an outline. You know, use this and as you learn more about cooking, feel very free to make changes. And now I would advise people that are finding these stray recipes, because there's a reason why there were, I was a test kitchen director and there were, is that we tested, we were known that our recipes worked. We tested every recipe, and we had it tasted, and we tested it again. But there's some difficulties with that, too, because there are even places that use that name in their titles and whatever, and they test it 
But a lot of times what they might do, and what I've noticed, is sometimes they adapt the recipe so that it will make a better looking dish or it will make a better, an easier, and sometimes some of the really excellent qualities are left out. So that's why knowing a basic, look to see if it's been tested. That's a good sign. And then there's a very famous food writer who's well-known for writing her recipes so that they look great. So if something calls for something ugly, you're not going to find right. her recipe. And I've noticed that, too. So it's, it's a very strange, but there is a way of listing them in order. You know, And you can do your own style. There's a paragraph style of writing where you write it in a paragraph. There's a way of listing ingredients in order. There's a way of capitalization. And if you, somebody, in fact, they can, if they want to email me, I'll send some info about how to do that. I've got a little sheet on how to save your own recipes. And I should make one up on how to recognize recipes on the social media. Oh, Donna, I would love that myself. Yes. One of the things that I've been trying to do is put together some of my children's favorite recipes in a book. Yeah. And I thought, yes. oh, this will be easy. But I find myself going back and making little notations. And anytime I make something good, a lot of times, you know, people will say, oh, I love this, you know, make it again. And I think, oh, gosh, you know, I don't know if I can ever make the same thing twice. <laughs> <laughs> so having some skills and some guidelines from you would be absolutely wonderful. And I can provide I a link. I'll provide a link to our listeners. Okay, well, we are at halfway as I knew our time would be flying by, but I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Donna Battle-Pierce. She is a journalist, editor, and food historian and director of the nonprofit Skillet Project. I want to talk about imagery in food and race because Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's and all of the images that I certainly grew up with and didn't think twice about I am right. learning now that those images are offensive, and I want you to help us be more understanding about why we need to be careful about how powerful words and images are within the food and race arena. Yes, yeah, sometimes I describe it when I talk to groups, and I describe it for myself, having my parents used to call us their soldiers of integration because we had to integrate everything. You know, mom would say, if there's not someone who looks like you, you have to join it. And that was my chapter here of Les Dames as an adult, of everything to have to be there. And sometimes I, I say that because of all of that, it's like being bilingual. I understand white culture. I was taught, you know, these poets and these people that really were not relation to my history or even that were just really a very strong Anglo-Saxon background and all of that. But I learned all of those. I had to learn about all of that and regard it and remember it. So I can recite poetry, Longfellow and whatever, better than I can sometimes or better than I could until I made it a importance for me to go back and study this on my own. But I did not get that from school. So from school, I got white culture. Mm -hmm. And white children were not taught. We were not in books. And when I went to college, I studied under Mari Evans, who was an amazing professor. And she opened my eyes to all of the amazing people around the country, around the world that I had never been introduced to. And for a year, I switched my major so I could take every single class in Black Studies because I wanted to know about my own people. 
And I knew how important that was for me to know that. And what I tell people today is in every single city in America, there are people that were left out and people that were, and I'm what I have to say, and I believe this, purposefully left out. Mm-hmm. And that is the part to me that is the racist element to all of this. And that is the part that people were left out so that they would not show the the dignity, the strength, the education of black people. So that people would not feel when they offered lower money or when they d- didn't accept people in jobs and all of that, they would under- think there was a reason for it. But that brings me to Annie Fisher in Columbia. I grew up in Columbia. I went to the Sky High Drive-In and did not know that that beautiful home across the street had been built by a black woman mm. who catered all over the university and had wonderful catered events in the home for the white professors and all, and who had been a speaker who had sold at the 1904 World Fair. I never knew this. I was never told this. She died in 1938, so we came too late to learn it, and it wasn't written in anything. And so those are the kinds of, and the fact, one of the last lynchings recorded in the newspaper, and we know there was the one in Columbia of a man who had bought the first automobile. Mm. You know, so there's so many hidden parts of history and people, and my dad used to always say, imagine what kind of world this would be if black people had been allowed to be who they are. Wow. I'm so glad you're bringing back the wise insights of your ancestors. And I thought it was interesting, during the same interview with the Southern Foodways Alliance, you said, and I realized, you know what? I need to focus on black contributions, black culinary contributions. I need to bring back people who are almost lost. That's when I began to know that even no matter what it took, and I felt that, I felt that passion, you felt that strength, I knew I was being directed. Exactly. It's interesting because this morning when I was putting some things together to make sure and and bring out and to share with your listeners, and I I hadn't thought for a while about Maya Angelou. Did I, had I mentioned that in that interview? I don't recall. It was a turning point for me at the Tribune, and that's when I made that decision. I had written this amazing Juneteenth story, and then I wanted to do it the next year, and I was told, oh, you already did a Juneteenth story. And I said, but we do July 4th stories every year. And I realized then that that was not, it was being seen differently. And the Juneteenth story was absolutely beautiful because we had sat and met with a wonderful photographer and the designer and everyone else and to make sure it was told with respect. Mm-hmm. And that's what shines on the, in the design of the page and in the photograph. It's respect. And that was 14 years ago. That wasn't being shown at the time. I interviewed Maya Angelou, who came in, and she had just done one of her cookbooks, and I love her books, and I love her. And she and I went to lunch at a hotel, and I interviewed her for a little story I was doing about her for the paper. And at the end of it, we were talking about what I was doing, and I was saying, I have to tell you this and ask maybe your advice. And I explained to her that I didn't feel as if I was able to tell my story 
as a race and how all these people have been left out. And I felt like I needed to tell that story, but I didn't know where to do it. And she said, excuse me. And she went upstairs and she had a poem she came back with. And the poem speaks exactly to that. And it speaks to the time we're in right now. And it's called Family Affairs by Maya Angelou. Well, I will provide a link to that if I can find it online so that we can all enjoy that and understand that this is all part of that story. We have a short amount of time, and I don't want this to sound disjointed in any way, but I have several items listed on my sheet uh, under a title of Be Sure to Talk to Donna About This. (laughs) And it had to do with a conversation that we had. I think I saw a post that you made on a Facebook comment about plantation cookbooks. And here again, I'm not aware of this cultural entity. And I thought, what are plantation cookbooks? And your comment was, don't edit out the content that might be offensive. Leave it in because people need to understand that that was how they were written. Do you want to now, talk about that? Now, that was my comment about Bon Appetit. Bon they Appetit. have a new trying to think what his title. I'd never heard of that title in Bon Appetit, who did a post the other day who said he was learning about all of the omissions and the cultural discrepancies and all of these things that had appeared over the years in Bon Appetit, and he was going to make it his role to go in and correct those. And that's what I wrote back and said, please don't take them out. We need to know that these were shown, and these were shown by Bon Appetit as I was learning to cook, and these came into my head. And please show the corrections, but please also let us know that this is what was posted, and this is what the whole world learned about. And with the plantation cookbooks, those are the ones that are were written by white writers, tongue-in-cheek, and the idea and sold almost always with a smiling and broad-breasted mammy mm-hmm. look on the front, or maybe even a skinny mammy, but it was that smiling, I don't give a care, I'm just here. And they always said, she doesn't really write down the recipes, but I spent time in the kitchen following her around, and here are the recipes. And their name, the white writer, was always the copyright. Oh. And so what that was was stolen work. That was presented by, and it was very popular in the 20s and 30s. And I reprinted some of them, Aunt Caroline's book, where I have written them as Aunt Caroline would have wanted me to write them as opposed to in dialect. And they're often done in dialect. One of my favorites, and I was looking for it, and I'm going to find it and write about it. And after our conversation, I was reminded of it. It's actually my very favorite of that style. This woman wrote about her maid who didn't have a real knowledge of writing or whatever, but she really can cook. And I made, you know, and the woman had the copyright, right? Not the maid who was the smiling woman. And then about five years later, the woman who had worked for this woman, the black woman, wrote her own cookbook and referred to the one with the kind of mammyish figure. And said, I'd like to write my own way of doing these recipes, which I just love. Right. That's so interesting. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left. And I know that you are working now on a book about Frida DeKnight. 
correct. And I'll have to have you come back so we can talk more in depth about that particular book. But Great. tell me a little bit, just to whet our appetites for what is coming, tell me what <laughs> it was about Frida that you were so attracted to. Oh, well, for one thing, my grandmothers both knew her. But when I started to research her life, she was a middle-class woman with her father had been a Pullman porter who died when she was young. But the fact of the Great Migration, people coming with southern roots and the roots of southern cooking and then moving to the Midwest and North. And she lived for two years, her first two years, in Topeka, Kansas, Mm. which I compared to my Columbia, Missouri. And then she moved with her mother after her father died to South Dakota. Wow. And she spent her early school in South Dakota and married a jazz musician and lived in Harlem and traveled all over Europe and did great stuff. And so her recipes reflect all of that. And she was a very, when she came back and was in Chicago for a while, she and the Johnsons were social friends, and he asked her to to be, and it was called The Date with the Dish, was the name of her column. And she wrote the cookbook with the dish, and you'll find it on the Internet. With a, It's a white press that's redone it. But unfortunately, it's about to, I'm going to redo it because there's a chapter that wasn't copyright ready, and now it can be done. That was the one that really sums it up because it's all, she talks about families and black families all over the country and uses their recipes and interviews them. That one's not in the one that you see or any of the ones that, except for the one that was the original in 1948. Hmm. And you write, her recipes presented a vision of black America that was often invisible in mainstream yes. media. And, quote, it is not an accident that there is a blackout on the black man's contributions in America. So coming full circle to your earlier point. Right. Exactly. Well, exactly. That is fascinating. Do you want to, until we meet again and and dive more deeply Uh into Frida tonight, would you like to leave our listeners with a message that is pertinent to these times? Yes. One of the thoughts I had, and I've been reading a lot of this, and I think that, and I've read this a lot about black writers who write about anything and, and other black food writers, is that it's not up to us as black writers to educate you. That's something we've been trying to do for a long time. When the editors, the people in the rooms who are coming out to apologize now, and every magazine and everything has come out with this giant apology, and I want to say... Before I read your apology, please send me a photograph of your editorial staff Hmm. because that's where it needs the people who are sitting in the room. That's where it can change. The apologies don't matter or the learning about things, but it's making sure that we're all represented in the room. The way I was represented when we were doing this story on Juneteenth, and I was able to say, I don't want anybody smiling and with eyes, bug-eyed, and saying, isn't this good soul food? I want a look of dignity. Mm. And people in the room will be reminders of that to anyone and will be correctors of that so we don't make these errors and continue it. Thank you, Donna. We need to close, unfortunately, but this is not the end of our conversation, I know. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Donna Battle-Pierce. 
journalist, editor, food historian, director of the nonprofit Skillet Project. And stay tuned because there's going to be a terrific book coming soon (laughs) about Frida tonight. Donna, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for carving out time for me today. Same here, and thank you. And I appreciate all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.